This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, an Irish Times perspective on foreign affairs brought to you by our network of foreign correspondents around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. The tradition of secularism, laïcité in French society, runs deep and through the political traditions of both left and right. Furious battles have been fought over the 2010 ban on Muslim women wearing the veil in public places. In recent months, this aspect of the culture wars has taken on a new turn with the refusal of right-wing controlled town halls to provide the traditional alternative in school dinners for pork and ham. Bewildered children as young as four and five are being dragged into political controversy. I'll be discussing the controversy and its ramifications with Lara Marlowe, our Paris correspondent. But first, climate change and the looming Paris summit, the so-called UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, COP21, in a sense, Kyoto Mark III, which begins in late November. COP21 hopes to get legally binding and universal agreements and commitments from more than 190 countries to keep global warming below 2 degrees by significantly reducing carbon emissions. 146 countries have submitted their national climate action plans to the UN. These countries comprise about 90% of global greenhouse gas emissions. I'm joined by Harry McGee from our political staff and Dr Dermot Tawney from the School of Law and Government of Dublin City University and author of the recently published book European Climate Leadership in Question, Policies Towards China and India. Harry, where does Ireland stand in terms of, of ambition and what did the bill that we've just seen going through the door, the Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Bill, say about our level of ambition? It says a little bit about our level of ambition. Perhaps it says that we are ambitious, more ambitious than some of our European neighbours, but perhaps not ambitious enough. It depends. It's a subjective uh, judgment. It really depends on where you're coming from. In the first instance, we've met our Kyoto targets, but the reason we met our Kyoto targets was that we had a good old-fashioned recession and that really um, meant that the the um, very high transport emissions that were evident during the middle of the last decade fell back significantly, as did uh, emissions in other sectors, including construction and electricity and, and what have you. Um, we may just make uh, the EU targets for 2020. It's kind of touch and go. I think if some of the flexibility mechanisms become uh, available, I think uh, we may uh, uh, achieve it. But because of the complicated formula they use, uh, we might have difficulty, and we'll have a lot of difficulty, um, in reaching the 2030 targets uh, that have been set by um, the EU uh, because of the way in which the uh, targets will be calculated. It will be very much based on what our emissions are uh, in and around 2020, 2021. But because of the recession, we haven't been able to put in the type of capital uh, uh, to uh, to to. Uh, put in uh, adaptation and mitigation um, infrastructure, and that's going to have uh, an impact. Uh, the government um, is generally um, good in terms of climate change. We come to legislation in a moment, but it ha- does have some difficulties. One of the difficulties it has is in relation to agriculture. Agriculture comprises a very big component 
um, of uh, our economy and also of our emissions output. Something and it's, like a third of our emissions output. Yeah, and it's much higher than, than many other EU countries, with the exception of some of the Eastern European countries like Poland. And that means that um, the targets become quite onerous for us because it's very hard to use technology to, to reduce. You know, if you have X amount of cattle and sheep, uh, and um, um, the, the national herd, and they're producing a certain amount of methane. The technology used in feedstuffs and other other methods uh, can only go so far in terms of reducing it. I think the estimate is seven to eight uh, percent. That that's the kind of impact that you can have using technology. So it'll still stay stubbornly high. And the government has been arguing uh, to uh, has made a case for agriculture, uh, saying that Ireland uh, is a special case and there, there should be some rule of exceptionalism uh, there. They're also looking at ways in which uh, our carbon sinks, um, they call it uh, um, Lulu CF, I think it's called. It's land use, land utilisation and afforestation, that type of thing, H- how that can be used. Uh, to to uh, as flexibility mechanisms uh, to to allow us meet the targets, but the twenty thirty target is going to be very difficult uh, for Ireland to meet. But the attempt to get Ireland to commit to a forty percent reduction uh, is is being strongly resisted by the government. Yeah, well, I mean, it's forty percent overall for the EU. So then, once that forty percent global target has been agreed, it will be open to each individual government to argue the toss and to make cases for their particular targets. So some countries within the EU will have targets that will exceed 40% and some will have targets that will be considerably below 40%. I think the government wants our target to be considerably below 40%. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I've heard figures of 30% and 25% um, being mentioned, but they're very preliminary at at this stage. And there's also, I mean, the other thing, the other piece of the jigsaw in relation uh, to uh, the government's approach to climate change is the legislation, which has just recently uh, gone through the uh, Arachthus. It has been controversial because uh, the government has refused to lay down specific targets uh, for 2015, long-term targets, even though it has said it will adhere to all targets that have been agreed at EU level and will will not um, will not try to distance itself from any of those. Uh, one of the big um, concessions that was added in at a comparatively uh, late stage uh, was a, a an amendment that uh, acknowledged and accepted climate the concept of climate justice. So that was an important amendment uh, to uh, the legislation uh, which went in at committee stage at a, at a very late stage uh, of the legislation going through uh, the uh, Arachthus. Um, other aspects of it, uh, there we'll have a climate advisory uh, um, c- committee uh, which won't have the same powers as the one in Britain, but it will have an influence and can bring its influence this way. The one thing that's slightly, from a practical point of view, uh, that that's slightly um, uh, um, worrying is that we ha- we haven't been operating under a, a programme or policy for over five years now since the last plan expired in 2012 and the next one isn't uh, due to start until 2017. So there's been that five-year gap uh, which is underway at the moment in which we haven't had an actual programme to which we can work. Dermot, uh, what's the state of play at EU level on, in, in, in preparing for, for Paris uh, in terms of, of the EU's own negotiating position? And has the EU got a particular role to play in terms of, of leadership internationally? Mm-hmm. Well, 
you've already discussed the EU's uh, 40% reduction target for, for the period to 2030. That builds on the EU's target for 2020, which is a 20% uh, reduction. Uh, so the EU has put in place its domestic set of policies uh, and, and targets for 2020 and 2030. And what we've seen over the last year or two uh, is a significant stepping up of the EU's attempt to mobilise diplomacy in support of an ambitious uh, agreement in Paris. Um, both the, the French presidency, France is hosting the, the conference uh, at the end of the year, but also the rest of the EU, other, other member states, particularly the, the ones with big diplomatic capabilities. They're, they're trying to reach out to other countries around the world and, and uh, persuade them to go further and, and, and to go deeper with their uh, carbon reduction policies. The other part of the, the picture when we talk about EU leadership is, if you like, the demonstration effect uh, that the EU can have on the rest of the world. So the EU has been at this game longer than anyone else. The, the US, we know, withdrew from the Kyoto Protocol and basically stepped back from the international picture. The EU if you like, stepped into that vacuum uh, and over the course of the 2000s put in place um, a, a set of policies which could have gone further, yes, but went further than any other region in the world. And so the EU, if you like, is a model for, for the rest of the world in terms of how to develop domestic measures to, uh, to respond to climate change. And this is one of the things that you've been looking at in, in the book that you just published, is that that's, right? That's right. I, I looked at the EU-China and EU-India relationship on, on climate change, and the EU-China picture is particularly interesting because uh, China has been moving quite uh, rapidly towards uh, a lower carbon, if not yet a low carbon uh, future. And in, in trying to make that transition, the Chinese leadership are now looking for how, how you go about doing that, how you get from high carbon to low carbon. Uh, and they've looked in particular at the EU example. Um, one of the significant announcements recently by the Chinese government was the decision to set up an emissions trading scheme. Uh, that kind of policy instrument uh, didn't originate in Europe, but with respect to reducing uh, carbon dioxide emissions, it's been pioneered by the European Union. And so when Chinese leaders look to put in place uh, policies to reduce carbon emissions, they look to the rest of the world, but they look in particular to Europe uh, for, for examples of best practice. The French have, as we said, invested a great deal of political capital in, in, in this uh, summit. And they are... Um, are they right uh, to to think that this is this is going to be their big moment? Is is given the previous history of of uh, uh, climate uh, summits, uh, really the record isn't isn't very good. Are, are the French um, riding for a fall? I've asked some French diplomats why France uh, took up the, this this mantle, and uh, they 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 say that nobody else was was willing to do it. They stepped into the the breach. It's certainly a huge challenge. It's a big ask, uh, but France has the second largest diplomatic machinery in the world after the United States. Their you know, French was originally the language of diplomacy. They've been at this game of international diplomacy, international negotiations for a very long time. So. If anyone can do it, I, I think the, the French can can do it. Uh, and 
in particular, they have learned a lot of lessons from the experience of the last big summit, the, the Copenhagen summit in 2009. So they're putting in a lot of the groundwork. They are, have been over the last year to year and a half uh, trying to build consensus, trying to speak bilaterally, but also in smaller group settings to negotiators and to ministers and heads of state from uh, a lot of the, the most important countries. Uh, they've, they've had a series of informal ministerial meetings this year in July, September and an upcoming one in November. Uh, that said, it's still a big ask. There are still significant differences between the parties on, on the key issues. brackets around text still. There are. And just overnight, uh, the, the, the current uh, set of negotiations started yesterday in Bonn. This is at official level rather than political level. Um, the negotiations opened yesterday with a 20-page negotiating text. By 4 a.m. this morning, it had increased to 34 pages. Um, and that was basically lots of unhappy countries reinserting their preferred bits of text into the negotiating text. So the danger is that the text just you know expands and expands. But there has has been, if I'm, I, I think I'm right to say that there's been a change in the politics of climate change since Copenhagen, and particularly, and you talked about a bit about China, the attitudes of China, Brazil, and India to to the whole process. And has that has that represented a, a qualitative change in the in the climate, uh, the political climate as opposed to the the air uh, for for uh, the prospects of, of of a deal? Well, I think what we see from particularly China and India is very mixed signals. So if you look at the domestic part of the picture, uh, as I said, in China, the Chinese leadership is is moving uh, significantly in the direction of low carbon setting targets for 2030 and, and putting in place policies to get there. India is also taking climate change more seriously, Brazil similarly. But with China and India in the nego- international negotiations, they're still, uh, to a significant step, as extent, wedded to uh, their old position of developed countries have to go first, uh, have to provide support to developing countries um, and so and the bill that they're talking about is still very very large isn't it for for the developed countries to pay up for it is i saw one figure attached to india's low carbon transition plan of 2.5 trillion dollars over the period from now to 2030 so you're talking about huge sums and that's just india the 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 figure for 2020 is is 100 billion dollars per year that developing countries are expecting. So the French have a a huge mountain to climb. Um, Harry, you're talking tomorrow to Alan Kelly, Ireland's uh, environment minister. Um, Do you sense um, ahead of that meeting that you have there somebody who is uh, willing to fight, who has a political will to engage with this issue and to show uh, leadership both in terms of the cabinet here and demanding that we make the changes necessary here and in Europe? Um, I think his party would have good credentials in relation to climate change, but I don't think he would be top of the class in terms of climate change within the Labour Party. I mean, he does say that he supports very strongly supports the legislation and will make a very good case for uh, Ireland, but he he wouldn't be seen or be perceived as to be a uh, champion for for climate change. Uh, tomorrow will be the first opportunity I'll have to uh, to speak to him uh, qua. 
uh, the, the Minister Responsibility for Climate Change. So it'll be interesting to ascertain exactly where he stands in relation to that. But nothing in his past would suggest that he has been a very big advocate for climate change, Paddy. Now, perhaps he'll, he'll change his tune tomorrow uh, when when I uh, I meet him. So we just have to wait and see. But uh, certainly, I mean, Ireland does does say that it will adhere to the um, EU target. It's There's a little bit of kind of speaking out of both sides of the mouth. We were saying that we're you know going to be the best boys in class or the best pupils in class in relation to climate change. But we are still looking for a significant concession for agriculture. The argument that we're making is that we are very efficient in terms of our agricultural output and there are some Chagas figures to back up that assertion. But they show us that we're good, but it doesn't they don't show that we're really, really good. And to get concessions we'll have to show that we're better than, for example, the Austrians who turn who, who seem to be the most efficient uh, agricultural producers in Europe in terms of emissions and, and what have you. So I think there is a bit of uh, sock pulling up to be done by the government uh, before it can make a bit of an argument both with the EU and at, uh, on the larger stage with COP21. But we've been briefed by the Department of the Environment um, officials. Um, they have uh, a unit in there which uh, is is looking after the COP21 negotiations in Ireland's place in it. And they have been, you know, they've been strong. I mean, they, the government position is a strong one. Uh, and we'll see tomorrow if the minister, uh, if he, um, if if his view aligns with that of his department and of his government. Thank you, Harry and Dermot. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code Irish Times to get ten percent off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now back to France. Since 2004, there's been a ban on girls wearing veils and other religious symbols in state schools. In the spirit of that enforcement of laicite, since 2014, some 130 girls have been sent home from school for wearing long skirts. These are seen by school principals as too ostentatiously religious. Now the forced assimilation of Muslims into French culture has moved to the school dining table with the decision of some mayors to remove from the lunch menus the traditional, quote, alternative to pork or ham, taboo in both Muslim and Jewish traditions. Children unable to eat pork will now only be offered side dishes. I'm joined by Lara Marlowe, our Paris correspondent. Lara, was there any real call for this? And is the scrapping of the pork-free option a real victory for secularism? Uh, no and no. Uh, the only, I, I think, the reason that these issues are coming so much to the fore now is the Charlie Hebdo massacre last January, uh, the immigrant crisis in Europe, where the French, like many other Europeans, some of them feel they're being inundated by by Muslims, a Muslim invasion, as Marine Le Pen, the head of the National Front, calls it. Um, so there's certainly a heightened awareness of everything Muslim. It's you know, frankly, these these small children are the victims of this because they're being, you know, pointed out. They're having, they're, they're being traumatized by the, their parents are telling them it's wrong to eat pork, and then perhaps other children at school will tease them because they don't want to eat pork, and then the parents will be worried that that somehow their children will end up eating something that's against their religion, even though they don't want to unwittingly. So, so it really is a mess. I mean, it should be pointed out. There's only a handful of towns. Um, there's one suburb 
Ottawa Paris called Chili Mazarin uh, with a right-wing uh, mayor from Les Républicains, also Chalon-sur-Saône uh, near Lyon. Um, there's a, a national front town called Ayange uh, up in the northeast uh, where the mayor is trying to get the halal butcher to, to be forced to close on Sundays, and he, he had what he called the, the fête au cochon, uh, the, the, the pig festival, um, obviously a, bit, a little bit to offend, uh, especially the Kosovar and Albanian Muslim immigrants uh, to his town. So it, it, it's something that's being used really to separate, point out, uh, segregate Muslims. It's pretty divisive. I mean, one has a sense that this is an unnecessary and gratuitous snub to the Muslim community, a sort of picking of a fight for the sake of a fight. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But, you know, the eating of, of pork is sort of being portrayed as something as, as French as the baguette and the beret and it's bleu blanc rouge and this is part of our identity. Identity is a word that you hear very often here now. I mean, Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was president, wanted to set up a ministry uh, for French identity. Um, so, so people feel that they're making a stand in the same way that they made a stand over uh, the wearing of the headscarf, uh, in the same way that, as you mentioned, um, dozens of, of schoolgirls school are now being sent home because they're wearing skirts that are considered too long because these are being considered an ostentatious uh, sign of religious belief. Is, is the Jewish community also up in arms? No, actually, I haven't heard any, I haven't heard a peep from the Jewish community, and you would think that they would be because um, many of their children, of course, want to eat kosher food, uh, but they're, they're, they're not complaining about this. I mean, I think it is really aimed at Muslims. And, and so far, legal action against the, the, um, the, the mairie that have done this have, has, has failed. That's right. There's the Culte Français uh, des Musulmans. There's, there's several organizations that defend the interests of Muslims, and they invariably lose uh, these trials. Now, how widely is this supported? Is it really just a sort of national front uh, exercise, or, 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 or are we seeing this widely supported in, in for example, Sarkozy's Les Républicains? Uh, absolutely. Um, the... <laughs> The Les Républicains is more and more sort of morphing into uh, a sort of second, mild, soft, light version of the National Front. Uh, Sarkozy is actually, he, he fully backs scrapping pork-free alternatives. Uh, he says it's a question of laïcité, of secularism, and that there is no reason why schools should have to uh, provide alternative meals for Muslims. I mean, very often the mayors justify this on financial grounds. They say that they're, they're all strapped for cash. It's true. They're still in economic crisis. And they just can't afford to offer alternative meals. For example, they used to give uh, Muslim children, say, a turkey sausage instead of a pork sausage when, when the other children were eating pork. Um, they're just saying that this is, this is a cost-cutting measure, um, but that's a pretty flimsy excuse. Yes, indeed. Um, but there are also divisions in the Les Républicains. I gather Rashida Dati, uh, a former minister, has, has come out against it. Uh, that's right. Well, she, of course, is, is from an Algerian Muslim family. She says it's a non-issue. Uh, and there are other... Um, there, there was a, 
um, a right-wing, uh, no, sorry, he's a sociologist, a man called François Dubé, who says that talking about secularism has become a way to claim a white Christian France where everyone shares the same values and tradition. It's a way of saying we don't want Muslims, and I think he's, he's really hit the nail on the head. By and large, the socialists tend to be a lot more tolerant and, you know, tend to want to give uh, Muslims um, alternative menus in the town halls they control. It should be pointed out that this is entirely up to the individual towns. And the towns that, um, that tend to make these kind of regulations are small and have large Muslim immigrant populations and, you know, are either uh, governed by the National Front or Les Républicains. Now, the ban on the veil was supported by many on the left, uh, as well as some feminists. The veil was seen as oppressive of women. Well, what's the state of that argument? Uh, Sarkozy actually is trying to extend the ban on the veil to universities. Um, the original law, which was passed by Jacques Chirac in 2004, banned all religious signs in French schools. And this is up to lycée level. Um, so you weren't meant to wear a crucifix or a kippah or uh, a headscarf. Uh, all of these things were banned, but it was seen even then as, as aimed at mainly at Muslims. Then a later law, I believe it was in 2010, banned the full-face burqa-type veil uh, in all public places. Uh, but there's still, I mean, this, this keeps coming back uh, all, all the time. It's been going on for as long as I can remember, really, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, now, there, there was a recent court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court called Babylou, which was a, a, a nursery school, a crèche, and one of the assistants there just wore a headscarf, not a, a sort of chador or burqa or anything like that, and she was fired. And uh, the, the court maintained in the end that she, they had the right to fire her, and, and all sorts of people got involved, like uh, Elisabeth Davantel, who's a very famous lawyer, wife of the former justice minister, uh, Manuel Valls, the current prime minister, got involved, and he supported the firing of this woman from the crèche. I mean, why it would hurt small children to have a woman wearing a headscarf around them, I, I, I don't know. Um, Valls has taken a, a very strong stand on laïcité since the Charlie Hebdo massacres, he said that it's the main solution to France's problems. When he was the mayor of Evry, which is a suburb south of Paris, um, in the early 2000s, he actually sued a Franprix, that's one of these little grocery stores, uh, because it was owned by Muslims and they were selling only halal uh, meat and they were not selling any pork and they were not selling any alcohol. And he said that they had a duty to provide that choice to customers. Uh, so it's it's a, an issue even for the left. Well, listen, thank you very much, Lara, and talk to you again. That's all for today from Worldview. I'm Patrick Smith, with thanks to Lara Marlowe, Harry McGee, Dermot Torney, and Sinead O'Shea, who produced, and Gary White on sound.